0: Welcome to this edition of the BreastCancer.org podcast. I'm Jamie DiPolo. I'm the senior editor here at BreastCancer.org, and I'm pretty excited today. We have a very, very interesting guest. Her name is Dr. Suzanne Wardell, and she is a research scientist at Duke University in North Carolina. Her research focuses on understanding the processes by which breast cancers develop resistance to tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors, and also in developing drugs that target estrogen receptor activity in these resistant tumors. And some of you may recognize Dr. Wardell's name. She posted a very interesting blog on our site talking about drug development. And she's also been um, a commenter in one of our boards, the Stage 4 and Metastatic Breast Cancer Only Forum. And Her comments were very much appreciated there. So we thought we'd have her on the podcast so maybe a few more people could learn about how breast cancer drugs are developed and why perhaps when you hear about a drug, um, say one year, and then you don't see it on the market for 10 years, or maybe you don't see it on the market ever, and she's going to tell us how some of these things work. So Dr. Wardell, welcome. It's very nice to have you here today.
1: Thank you, Jamie. It's a
0: privilege to be here. So um, how did you, I guess let's, let's start before we get into all the drug development process. How did you get interested in this area of work?
1: That's an interesting question. I'm actually, I wouldn't say necessarily a card-carrying breast cancer biologist. It certainly is one of them. My focus in, in the research that I do I actually am more of an estrogen receptor person, and we're interested in estrogen receptor activities and how it can be targeted for um, treatment of a number of different things, um, postmenopausal osteoporosis, um, endometriosis, as well as breast cancer, of course, is one of the major areas in which we need to target this receptor. Okay. So I would say that's that's why I, I... ended up in breast cancer mostly because we're very interested in the estrogen receptor and how it's working both in a normal situation as well as in a cancer situation. And how did you get interested in that field? Um, As a graduate student some time ago, I was working on the progesterone receptor and um, it became clear that... What for particularly for progesterone receptor, there seems to be a role in breast cancer, but we don't even really understand its role in normal biology. And so that just made me very interested in what are these receptors really doing? And then in as you progress into a cancer situation, how is their activity changing? How is it going from a normal to an abnormal?
0: Okay, that's, that's very interesting. Um, So let's talk about the drug development process. Um, I know you've worked a lot with one specific drug, and I'm not going to pronounce it correctly. Basodoxyphine. Basodoxyphine. Thank you very much. Uh, We're going to call it BZA for simplicity's sake here, I think, because I will trip over it, I'm sure. Um, And that particular drug is approved in Europe to treat osteoporosis. And I know some women here were interested in finding out why it's not approved in the United States. Um, and anecdotally, we know that it can show some cancer suppression activity, correct? Mm-hmm. But the the research specifically on cancer has not been done for that drug.
1: Yeah, so vasodoxapine has kind of an interesting clinical history in that it was identified by Wyeth at the time, has since been bought by Pfizer, Um, as a estrogen receptor ligand, so an activator, a molecule that will bind to the estrogen receptor and, and activate its activities, um, that had activity in the bone in that it mimics estrogen in the bone, but it blocks estrogen receptor activity in the breast and the uterus. And this is kind of a long story in that it's been known for about 50 years now that, Women who are treated with tamoxifen actually have increased bone density. That was kind of a serendipitous observation. And so the idea at the time was well, if we could dial out some of the activities of tamoxifen, specifically the activation of the endometrial tissue, then we would have a safe treatment for postmenopausal osteoporosis because that is actually a huge medical problem and costs the United States government alone a billion dollars every year because of all of the fractures that go along with osteoporosis. And so in the um, development of, of the, this class of drugs, they were looking for drugs that would not cause the endometrial stimulation that tamoxifen does, but would still retain that activity in the bone so that they could safely target the bone without having the um, side effects of either increased risk of breast cancer or increased risk of uterine cancer. So this drug was entirely intended for women's health, really, not for using cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, Just anecdotally, at the same time that basidoxifene was identified by Wyeth, another drug, pippindoxyphene, which is very, very similar, was identified at the same time. And that one was earmarked for breast cancer. So, hippindoxifene was actually taken forward and reached phase two trials, in which women that were recruited to these trials had actually already progressed through both tamoxifen and aromatase inhibitors.
0: And and were having no response after that.
1: Clearly, exactly. And so, these women there were were treated with hippindoxifene, and the company at the time set themselves far too high of a response bar. They set themselves a 50% response bar, which I think most oncologists would tell you in a population that has already progressed through one or more treatments, that is not a realistic goal. Just to
0: clarify, I want to make sure everybody understands when you say a response bar, Mm
1: -hmm. that means
0: how many women or actually how many tumors were responding to the drug.
1: Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so they set a 50% response bar. 30 is generally what is used in the field. Okay. And in this trial of pipsandoxapine, they actually cleared 30 easily, but they didn't quite make it to 50. Weren't sure what to do with those results because then that, that places a black mark against the drug because mm. it didn't meet its trial goal. Okay. That then makes it that much more difficult to get through the FDA. Okay. okay. And so they shelved that drug. Okay. It um, made several oncologists... I'm happy, okay. the least. Sure. Um, and so that kind of, um, that ended the interest at the time in targeting the estrogen receptor in a cancer situation with these drugs. However, basodoxaphine went forward into treatment trials for postmenopausal osteoporosis. does fantastic. It's got a similar um, effect as raloxifene, except that it lacks hot flash. That's okay. one of the side effects that women particularly object to with raloxifene yeah. treatment is hot flash.
0: And we should, and I should say, I'm sorry to interrupt again, but raloxifene, also known as Avista.
1: Avista, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Avista, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that is where that that originally was its intended path. And then in the, the past year, um, basenadoxifene plus a um, essentially Premarin has been approved for the treatment of osteoporosis or, or women at risk for postmenopausal osteoporosis, but also for hot flash because it provides a safe, relatively, as as compared to other treatments, a safer option of um, hormone therapy in the postmenopausal setting. Okay. And the reason for that is that the basodoxyphene, opposing the estrogen signal predominates throughout the body in the breast and the uterus it also predominates in the bone so you still get bone protection but there's just enough estrogen that leaks into the brain to block hot flash okay and so that was really the clinical goal that Pfizer had for this this drug that means that all of the clinical trials that they have done with bazodoxepine either as Um, a single therapy, or combined with Premarin, were not what we say powered to analyze breast cancer risk. So when we are designing a clinical trial, we have to do a clinical trial in a population that is at risk for the condition that we want to treat. Sure. And so the patients selected into the trials were actually recruited based on their bone density, not on their breast cancer risk. Okay. Okay. And so while anecdotally they can say that they saw no increased risk in breast cancer, they cannot say that they saw necessarily protection against breast cancer.
0: Right. Right.
1: That means even though we have terrific data to show that this this compound is very active in all of our cell models, animal models, you name it, of um, both actually endometriosis as well as breast cancer, Pfizer would have to go back and redo all of those Phase two trials looking at a population that is at risk for breast cancer.
0: Okay, Okay. and that costs costs millions of dollars, correct?
1: Many millions of dollars. Okay. And so it's something that they have to be very much convinced they are going to get benefit out of doing that. Right. Which is not to say that they are not interested in doing it. Um, The work that we've been doing more recently – with this compound is actually Pfizer said to us. You know, we're not sure that just bringing this forward as a monotherapy is going to be the most effective way to develop this for breast cancer. What if we look at this as a combination therapy? And so we have been looking at the activity of basidoxphane BZA in our different models of breast cancer when it's combined with kinase inhibitors of different pathways. And actually, we're even more excited about this drug. Oh, so wow. we're hoping that Pfizer is just as excited about this drug because it has very real potential.
0: When you say a kinase inhibitor, is, are there drugs on the market now that you're combining them with?
1: Um, one of the ones that is of interest is a compound called palbociclib. Oh, which okay. is a CDK4-6 inhibitor, mm-hmm. um, was recently um, shown in the PALOMA-1 trial to, when combined with letrozole, an aromatase inhibitor, the palbo-letrozole treatment group, the, the, those patients actually saw a greater than twofold increase in their progression-free survival time. Okay. okay. And that was in stage 3 patients. So women who... Already had advanced cancer, then
0: mm-hmm. that's uh,
1: that's that's a pretty exciting result. Oh, definitely,
0: actually. definitely. And
1: so that then that that says that targeting the estrogen receptor together with the CDK4 six pathway has real treatment potential, and so that is leading them to consider branching out to other def- ways that we can target the estrogen receptor. Okay. And One no- of the liabilities of the aromatase inhibitors is that they cause loss of bone density mm-hmm. because estrogen signaling is required to maintain bone density. If you use a compound like basidoxifene or any of a number of other different um, drugs of this class, you would actually be able to maintain bone density at the same time as targeting the estrogen receptor in tumors.
0: Okay. So- And part of the reason, too, um, when you were talking about how Pfizer might not be interested, um, one is the cost, but then it also has to show, if I understand drug development properly, they would have to show that this new compound works just as well or even better than what's on the market right now.
1: And that's exactly true.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm. And that can be, if it works just as well, then some people would say, well, why should we probably pay more for this new drug if we have something on the market now that perhaps is already a generic and mm-hmm. it costs much less?
1: And that's exactly right. That's, that is probably why we will never see, I, I can't necessarily say never, but it is unlikely we will ever see anything unseat tamoxifen and the aromatase inhibitors in an initial treatment setting because okay. those drugs are very effective most women Mm -hmm. and they're now generic and they're cheap right and
0: part of that the insurance companies play into a little bit too because they would say well if this is available for this much less why should we pay for this brand new thing that costs so much more
1: Exactly. Let's say that the benefit is only 10% 10 greater, but it costs 80% more. They're not going to approve that treatment.
0: Okay. Now, is BZA, if I'm understanding right, BZA is not approved in the United States to treat osteoporosis?
1: That is true. It is approved in Europe and in Japan and now was recently approved in Mexico.
0: Okay. Now, can can you talk about why
1: that is? Yeah. So, Part of it is because they are marketing, instead, the formulation with Premarin plus basadoxaphene. It's um, called uh, DuoV. Okay. And there is very strong clinical data to show that not all estrogens are the same when it comes to hormone replacement therapy. So in the 10-year follow-up data after the um, cessation of the Women's Health Initiative trial, Looking at the patients that had already had a hysterectomy, and so they were only treated with the Premarin-only combination, as opposed to the PremPro that included also the progesterone analog, they actually see reduced rates of breast cancer in these patients. Mm -hmm. This is different from pretty much most formulations of estrogen that are on the market, and so all of the clinical trials that Pfizer has done combining basodoxyphine with an estrogen has been done with Premarin. Their concern is if basodoxyphine is available as a monotherapy, they do not want the liability of a doctor prescribing, well, I'll just give you basodoxyphine and then an estrogen patch. Because oh, that see. combination has not been tested. Okay. And there's no way for them to be confident that you're not going to see an increased risk of breast cancer because it hasn't. It's not known.
0: Okay, and that's not a concern in Europe or Mexico or other places that
1: it's approved. Um, that has not been that has not been launched. Actually, they started with a launch in the United States, I believe. They're also launching in Europe and Japan, um, but that kind of falls into the we've already approved. It's already on the market. Okay, I can, under, I can understand how that can be confusing. Yeah, I'm I'm very confused actually. <laughs> a second reason I think that probably Pfizer has not chosen to go go ahead and register. They they have a, a letter from the FDA that they can register bezotaxine. They have chosen not to do so. I think in part because of the fact that Evista will come off patent. I believe this year or next year.
0: Oh, okay.
1: And so what that places them in a situation actually a very losing situation for them in that they could spend several million dollars launching basodoxyphene by itself in the United States only to lose out to the generic raloxifene because that is what the insurance company is going to be willing to pay for.
0: I see. I see. Okay. Okay. So while it's approved in those countries, it doesn't necessarily mean that Pfizer has launched it. Um, is, it
1: has been launched, oh, has been actually. Launched. in It is available okay. in Mexico and in Europe and Japan. Okay. But it has also been... In, in Europe, it's been available for quite some time, years now. Oh, so okay. it's. I think it's a difference in timing. Okay. Because they certainly cannot recoup the costs of registering, marketing, and then you, they spend several million dollars convincing doctors to try it. And so... It it becomes a lose soon
0: situation for them. Okay, okay. Um, so all right. So hopefully that helps everybody understand the whole process and why sometimes because the trials also take many many years to go yes. through, like a phase two trial, a phase three mm-hmm. trial. So that's why you may hear about something that sounds very promising, and then. 10 years later, perhaps it's finally on the market. There's just that huge lag time in there.
1: That is exactly right, because there are, you have to do, essentially, it's a minimum of three years to look at, because you could say, well, we're going to treat for a year. Well, that's great, but it's going to take you two years to accrue enough patients to have a statistically relevant answer. In your trial, because unfortunately, ten patients doesn't do it. One hundred patients doesn't do it. You have to get into thousands, and it takes quite a while to accrue all of those. Even if you are working at multiple clinical sites, then you have to follow all of those patients for this prescribed one year, two year, sometimes five years, and so it can be at least a three to seven year process. Okay. To finish a clinical
0: trial. Sure. And that kind of underscores, I think, the importance of clinical trials. We do have information about clinical trials in the breastcancer.org site. And I mean, me personally, I would like to just give a big thanks to any woman who decides to enroll in a trial because you are helping move drug development forward. And, you know, you don't know if you're getting the drug that's being studied or maybe you're getting. A placebo, but in either case, you're helping move it forward. And you know, while I understand a clinical trial isn't right for everybody, it really does help the whole situation. So. It does,
1: and actually, I would say that I've found an incredible willingness in breast cancer patients to do exactly that. It's it's there's really speaking to these women. There's a feeling of sisterhood in that where. It may not help me, but it's going to help the next woman. Mm -hmm. And I have to say I'm really proud of them for that.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. And I know, too, I think people were particularly interested in BZA because it seems like so much of the research focuses on early stage. Mm -hmm. And I know that women who have been diagnosed with metastatic disease sometimes feel like they've kind of been pushed in the corner, like nobody wants to hear about them. That's
1: exactly why our lab – is particularly interested in finding drugs that are effective in that situation because that's a very underserved population.
0: Right, 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 the two
1: right. The two most underserved populations of breast cancer patients are those who are diagnosed with triple negative disease okay. because there really is no key pathway that can obviously be targeted. Right, right. And also those who have progressed after therapy is targeting the estrogen receptor. Mm-hmm. And that
0: number is growing each year. I mean, as treatments become better and better, you hear about more people, cancer is considered a chronic condition. They're living with cancer for 5 years, 10 years, 15 years. Mm-hmm. So that's, and,
1: and, and doing so with amazing courage. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. What
1: also is particularly interesting to me is that as we are becoming more and more adept at managing systemic disease and inhibiting the growth of the metastases, We're finding that more and more we need to come up with treatments that can reach the brain because brain metastases is a growing problem because we are getting so good with the lapatinibs and the herceptin and inhibiting the growth of the bone mets and the lung mets and the liver mets that we have to be able to reach the brain
0: okay is that i and i don't know necessarily if there's a certain progression with breast cancer is it usually like bone liver and then brain would the final sort of metastasis spot. That
1: is actually that is the case in estrogen receptor positive disease. Okay. For the triple negative patients, it is not uncommon for them to first present with metastases to the brain. Oh,
0: okay, okay. So yeah, so that would make sense. It would need and that's kind of a whole tricky situation too, because you need to get across the blood-brain barrier but not harm the brain.
1: That's
0: exactly right, yes. Okay. Is that, um, and your is your lab working on that as well? We are. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you can talk about or no? Not at this time. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I understand that things are proprietary. Um, are there, and I know you mentioned you were working on that uh, the combination of the targeted therapy and the BZA. Mm-hmm. Are there any other treatments that you're working on that you can talk about or no?
1: Um. I think that none of the treatments are at a time that I can talk about. What we can talk about is we have been very interested in what are lifestyle changes that can mm-hmm. be made that would reduce breast cancer risk, breast cancer progression. And this this past year we have published a um, an interesting study in which we have identified a metabolite of cholesterol okay. that is... Um, it's, it's what we say is stoichiometric. So that means that as you increase cholesterol, you increase this metabolite called 27 hydroxy cholesterol. I just call it 27 HC for, for ease. And as you increase 27 HC, you increase the growth of breast cancer. It, and that is because it can actually bind to and activate the estrogen receptor.
0: So this would be hormone receptor positive. Breast cancer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. I will get to the negative and just a, the hormone oh, receptor sure. negative in just a second because it actually has a role in that as well. Oh, okay. Um, so what we're particularly concerned about is that that means that patients that are, let's say, treated with an aromatase inhibitor intended to lower their estrogen levels to the basement as low as you can get them. That's wonderful, but if they have high cholesterol and therefore high 27-hydroxycholesterol, there's another ligand the the estrogen receptor can use. And we've been able to show that in animal models of that situation, you actually do increase the growth of these tumors. And it's not just cholesterol itself. It's this particular metabolite. Okay. And so that then has led us to um, begin studies evaluating whether statin therapies to lower cholesterol would be effective in reducing the growth of breast cancer tumors. Interesting. Interesting. But that's an easily modified health factor that patients can do for themselves. Sure. And it sort of it lends,
0: um, or I shouldn't say
1: it underscores
0: the idea that maintaining a healthy weight, eating a healthy diet, keeping your cholesterol levels at a, at a healthy level, all of that sort of helps reduce your risk overall.
1: It does indeed. And secondarily, we also have been able to show that exercise really inhibits tumor growth. Interesting. And that is, we initially showed this in animal models. The exciting part of that, though, the really exciting part is that when we take a group of animals, we establish cancer in these animals, and then we allow them to exercise. So in this case, that is the animal model of the couch potato who is diagnosed with breast cancer and says, all right, I'm going to get healthy Mm -hmm. and starts just even just an an easy brisk walk, 20 minutes, three times a day Mm -hmm. or, or sorry, three times a week. Three times. Okay. Yeah. These animals did so much better. Interesting. And it doesn't matter if you, I mean, if you're a marathon runner, good for you, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to become a marathon runner to get the benefits of the exercise. And you don't have to do the exercise prior to being diagnosed. There's no, there's a benefit to, to exercise no matter when you start.
0: Oh, well, that's very, very interesting. And, and you were able to show, or maybe you're working on this, that this was kind of independent of any treatments. This was just the exercise.
1: We haven't been able to advance it to the treatments, okay. but there is data, uh, there's clinical data to show that adding exercise to a treatment regime of, um, whether it's a targeted therapy or whether it's chemotherapy. And those are, those are patients that I have ultimate respect for when you're taking chemotherapy and you still make it in and you walk on the treadmill. That's amazing too. Yes. So those, those patients are experiencing quite a bit of benefit for just getting exercise.
0: Wow. That's I think okay, if, if anybody takes anything away from this podcast, for me, that would be one of the most important things. And while certainly, as you said, I understand it can be very, very difficult to get yourself motivated to get out and walk when you're on chemotherapy or when you're having targeted or taking targeted therapy, but you're gonna do that much better for yourself if you can if you can do that. And it's even, I think it sounds like you're talking about just like maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes, mm-hmm. three times a week. Yeah. Just, just a nice, a easy walk. walk. for, Yeah,
1: 20 minutes. Just get your heart rate up.
0: Wow. Well, that's great. I'm going to be looking forward to um, more research coming out of your lab on <laughs> yes. that. That yes. sounds very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it looks like we're almost out of time. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Suzanne Mordell from Duke University in North Carolina. Um, she, her research focuses on estrogen receptors in various cells and that's led her into studying treatments for breast cancer and we are thrilled that you shared some of your knowledge with us today thank you so much
1: thank you very much